Hello everybody and welcome to an episode of Impactful Conversations. I hope that this finds you well wherever you're listening to this. My name is Tafadzwan Dlovo and thank you for listening to this episode. So on the show, I interview and speak to individuals who are making a difference in their world. Individuals who have a different way of thinking and are forming as leaders in their respective fields. I'd love to hear some of your feedback on the episode, either by writing us a review or giving us a five-star rating in the podcast app that you're listening to right now, or by heading over to our website, which is impactfulconversations.co.za. We also have a YouTube channel where you can go there and search Impactful Conversations, and you'll find us over there as well. We also have a newsletter that we do every month with some of the content from our episodes, along with some interesting pieces that we have come across. Anyway, wherever you're listening to this, I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to part two of the Critical Infrastructure SA series powered by Sibanzana. I am thrilled today to be joined by none other than Kieran Maharaj. Um, Kieran is the Managing Director of Gib Power, as well as the Chairperson of the South African National Energy Association, or SAMIA. Um, Kieran has extensive experience um, in the industry, so um, you know, operating as an executive in Africa's foremost utility, she was involved in many game-changing initiatives, um, from setting up energy trading and bidding system to allow for internal power pool trading, uh, to leading company, company-wide cost re-engineering projects to identify cost savings, productivity, and efficiency improvements in the multi-billion dollar company. Um, Kieran has founded startup ventures that further empowerment and transformation in both management consulting and energy sectors. And she was for around six years, she was accountable for strategic directing, governing and overseeing the safe and effective production of electricity from over 14,000 megawatts of coal-fired power generation. So she is a rock star and I'm thrilled uh, to be joined by her this morning. Um, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how are you doing this morning? Uh, good morning. Good morning to you and all your listeners. Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, morning was off to a good start, except I just have to say I am missing the sunshine. Yeah, it's been it's been a while, hasn't it? It's um it's starting to feel like you know we we live in Cape Town. It's really starting to feel. Yeah. Like it. so I I lived in Cape Town for four years, and um, you know I I actually told Alistair this last week when we when we spoke that this. This feels eerily like, you know, May in Cape Town. This is exactly what it feels like. So it feels a bit strange, to be quite honest. So I haven't had the Cape Town living experience, and I'm not sure I want it. But this <laughs> seems very familiar to, like, being in the UK. Uh, yes. You know, it's that, days. <laughs> <laughs> is that type of vibe. You're absolutely correct. So, Kieran, just to, just to get started, I think it would be really, you know, great for people to sort of get to know you. And, you know, as we sort of, you know, delve into this episode, but to just get started, um, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, where were you born? Uh, where did you grow up as well? And then um, I guess in keeping with the theme, um, what is your understanding of the term uh, critical infrastructure? Okay, great. So I was born and grew up in KwaZulu-Natal in a town called Newcastle. Awesome. Uh, everybody thinks, uh, you know, whenever they think about Newcastle, they always think about coal, but it's also associated with steel. Mm. So you know, in my days in Eskom, when I ran the primary energy division and coal was one of my key responsibilities, I always used to say maybe it's in my veins. Uh, yeah. But uh, I guess, uh, you know, it's not sustainable in the long term. So that's something that's going to have to change. But yeah. I've been in Pittsburgh for a long time. And uh, I think if you've lived more than your, half your life in a different place, you can then call yourself a Joe Burger instead of somebody from Newcastle. But uh, uh, it's still a lovely little town, uh, you know, and uh, maybe not so little, but it's still a lovely town and always go back there and very grateful for having roots there. Mm, mm, mm. That's really awesome. And if I had to ask you, you know, Critical infrastructure, what's the first thing that pops into your mind if I ask you, if I say to you critical infrastructure, that phrase, what does it mean to you? So I want to to maybe just use an example. So whenever I think critical infrastructure, I always think about getting stuck in Johannesburg traffic. (laughs) Uh, And if you've had that experience, you know, where you thought you were going to pitch up at your meeting at 9 o'clock in the morning and then you end up there at 11 o'clock 
then it starts to dawn on you, you know, how critical infrastructure actually is. And critical infrastructure is really just what makes nations work. You know, in, in a company, it's what makes companies and corporates and even small businesses work. But at a national level, it's really what enables the nation to work and to contribute to economic development, social upliftment, job creation. It, it really is the foundation of, you know, how you grow, grow nations. And I think criticality doesn't only come from the fact that it, it, it embodies essential services, but it also comes from the usage, the use cases behind it, the need for efficiency, the need for reliability. And it really is very important that we don't ever see critical infrastructure without seeing the broad-based integration. So, you know, just coming back to my example of Johannesburg traffic, take out a traffic light or two on a main road, and then you understand how important the integration of the auxiliary and supporting systems for, for mainstream infrastructure actually becomes. So it's yeah. a very holistic, integrated approach that you have to take when you look at infrastructure in terms of, you know, making it efficient, making it reliable, making it produce the results that it needs to, not just for uh, investors, but for utility as well. Mm. 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 That's an incredibly profound answer. And I think, you know, you actually sort of brought it home. And um, not just, well, for, for me, and I'm sure for a lot of listeners when you spoke about traffic, because actually, you know, that's something which everybody experiences. And I think we're all impacted um, by critical infrastructure, which is exactly why it's, you know, critical. Um, I, I want us to, to talk about your journey a little bit before we sort of dive into, you know, critical infrastructure, energy, and so on. Um, so you are in a technical field, but you yourself are non-technical, right, in terms of theoretically, right, um, in terms of what you study. I'm fascinated by this because I, I think it's, it's so, it's uncommon, right, to, to sort of, you know, to, to have charted the part that you have charted. But I really want to get an understanding of how you've navigated those technical rooms um, and especially, I guess, you know, rooms where people didn't look like you, people didn't talk like you, people, you know, people didn't know where Newcastle was. <laughs> you know, I'm quite interested to just get to know how that sort of, you know, how you've actually found that journey throughout. So uh, it's interesting that uh, my non-technical journey has led me to currently running a consulting engineering business without being a, an engineer. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes I say it's probably the greatest gift that I have, that I'm not an engineer that works in an engineering world, because everything is about balance. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, if you can focus on where you can create complementary environments rather than everybody being the same, uh, that's kind of where, I you know, I add value. But I also have to say I'm not totally clueless when it comes to technical stuff. Uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, when I worked on power stations and I, uh, with the power stations and I hadn't, uh, uh, I'm not an engineer and I hadn't been on a power station, I spent hours and hours learning about power stations and uh, studying boiler manuals and turbine manuals and, you know, things like that. So I think that, uh, you know, I've always had this mind about logical problem solving and being analytical and things like that. And I guess at 18 years old, the drivers for your career choices are not necessarily where you're going to end up. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I joined uh, ESCOM at, uh, well, I actually worked for ESCO, uh, what's now ArcelorMittal in Newcastle first. Okay. And in the finance department, and I couldn't understand why the finance people hadn't, don't go to the plant. You know, aren't they interested in this plant? So I organized all these visits and I started this plant and... Uh, I, I remember they didn't even have safety shoes my size at the time, so I had to wear the safety shoes with very thick socks so that they don't come off my feet. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, got into the plant, came back dirty, you know, dust under your fingernails and whatever, but actually just getting a feel for what the business is. And I have to say, I joined Majuba, I was in total awe of the plant. Mm. Just, you know, learning. Um, I met the power station manager one day and he asked me, why don't I come to the production meeting? And I started to go to the production meetings and he just started to open my mind up to what this thing was all about. And this, um, you know, innate curiosity I have about how things work, you know, you know, how you can change things, what you can do differently. And that 
uh, was really peaked at the time. And I spent hours walking the plant, learning about things and whatever. And I guess, you know, that kind of took me on a different trajectory. Um, I've had some interesting learning experiences when I ran Eskom's primary energy division. I had to learn about bulk road transport and, uh, you know, rail transport and rail systems and, uh, you know, uh, coal mining and uh, water management and things like that. So civil engineering stuff around yeah. that and, and that. So, yeah, it's been an incredible learning journey. And I think that's really what uh, has taken me in this direction. Uh, every day there's something more to learn about how the world works. Uh, and I guess it all boils down to this, you know, the basic underlying principles of engineering, which is about problem solving, logic, yeah. you know, creation, making new things. Uh, and that's always what's fascinated me. Mm. Uh, my journey has been tough, as you, you've said, but uh, it hasn't been, it's, it's been incredible fun, incredible learning. Um, you know, it's, it, it's also had some, it's really been ups and downs, but I believe very firmly that life is not a straight line because, you know, even in an ECG, if it's a straight line, you're dead. So, uh, you know, life is a series of ups and downs and you got to decide, you know, how you, how you learn from them. I must say in my early days, you know, I took to heart a lot of things that, uh, and things people said and, you know, being kept out of rooms and, and things like that. I took all of it to heart, but I learned eventually that, uh, you know, you need to decide in your life whether you feed the things that give rise to your fears mm-hmm. or you things that give rise to your creativity and wisdom. And, you know, I've kind of chosen the latter. I have my down days, obviously, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of chosen the, the, the latter. Um, you know, one of the things that gave me a lot of courage was, support from specific people, you know, people recognizing that you have the potential to add value and to contribute. But uh, I've always made it my personal commitment that, uh, you know, once I've been given a platform in which to contribute, then I contribute. You know, there's no measures. Uh, There's no, you know, playing a a poor game. You've got to take your A game to space. And uh, it's a trial and a test. And, you know, it doesn't matter what color you are, what gender you are, what race you are, who you are. Um, every time you step onto a platform, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trial and yeah. you've got to decide how you're going to succeed. Uh, you've got to decide what you put into it. And now, you know, I don't believe in doing things in half measures. You either in the game or you're not. Um, and I think it's been my, you know, the way in which I've learned, grown, uh, and managed to, to come through a lot of it. What I find sad still is that in this technical environment, uh, you know, just talking about the gender issue, there's still too few women around the table. Mm. And, uh, it's been a long, long journey, uh, and we still haven't reached that, uh, uh, inclu- you know, level of inclusivity. Yeah. Uh, and I really hope that it's something that we can, we can continue to work on because everybody uh, has a perspective to, to contribute. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's that's extremely insightful and, you know, I think gives us a, a window in, into your experience um, and, and the journey that you've walked, which I think is an incredibly powerful and inspirational journey. If I had to ask you three words or three phrases um, that not that people describe you by, but that you would like people to describe you by. Hopefully the two are the same. Right? We all aspire for the two to be the same. <laughs> but what, is, what, is, what are the three words or the three phrases that you would like or aspire for people to describe you by? Only three. That's such a small box. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, uh, you know, the the... A part of me says super awesome, fabulous, magnificent, you know, yeah. kind of thing. But uh, no, I think, uh, you know, just being a bit realistic and maybe making it a bit about uh, who I am, I think uh, definitely impactful and interested, mm-hmm. um, driven, fair, you know, kind. Um, yeah, if you only want three, otherwise I can make it. <laughs> Well, I think those those um, those few words that you that you've given, I can certainly agree with. You know, in in my interactions with you, so I think it's I think it's extremely you know extremely um, inspirational. I think you know in the journey that you've walked, and 
And as, as we sort of delve into this episode, I think, you know, people will, will get a bit more of a sense of that, you know, that journey as well. So we started off a bit fast. Um, I want to sort of, you know, take it, take it down a notch a little bit. Um, I want to get a sense. So, you know, obviously we're in the COVID-19 pandemic. Everyone's world was kind of, you know, turned upside down. Um, but, you know, what's, what's your typical working day like? Like, what, is, what time does it start? You know, are you a morning person? Are you the person who's like energy level like here in the morning and then they sort of, you know, go down? Or are you the sort of, you know, slow burner, you know, get up nice and warm as, as you know, as the day goes along? I'm quite interested to, to just hear, you know, what's a typical working day like in your life? So uh, I have, I'm very fortunate that I have good energy levels. So sometimes even midnight, I'm still buzzy. But, you know, I my mornings tend to be a bit slow. Um, I sometimes wish I had a night shift job because I really think that I have a lot more energy at night. But uh, my mornings tend to be a bit slow. Uh, you know, I, I practice some meditation and grounding and, you know, just try to be a bit intentional and purposeful in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Uh, exercise is my biggest enemy. So, you know, that's my tough challenge to, to get moving and, you know, get to yeah. something something in the morning uh my working day has got undergone a major major transition with this covid um you know i i would normally be rushed and get into the traffic and i think that in itself just pumps you up a little bit you know to to get to work so now it's like quite calm and cool uh which is a big change for me i think i missed that uh, intensity of you know the rush yeah but um it's uh you, you know it's for me i think uh this new way of working is a challenge. Um, this virtual interaction, I, I miss the face-to-face. Um, I miss, you know, just being with people. And, you know, on a virtual screen where everybody's this tiny, that doesn't really make for an interaction. Yes. But um, So I miss that part of it. But I also have to say it's given me a lot of space uh, to be able to do different things in my day, which I greatly appreciate. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there's no leaving the office. I'm worried about... Uh, coming home in the dark or anything like that, you, you know, I can continue to time and pace the things in the way that I that I need to. So it's been a big adjustment, I have to say, but uh, getting used to it definitely. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, yeah, I think it's you know, there's been such a major shift in terms of how we spend time as well. And um, you know, you spoke at the beginning about you know critical infrastructure being about the traffic. You know, all of a sudden that hour of traffic, if you're working from home, is, is all of a sudden gone. And even if you're not, you know, I think traffic has reduced massively because of people working from home. So life is completely different, I think. Um, and it does shift our days around quite a bit. You, I've noticed that you have, you know, there's two two companions that you have um, that I'm very interested to get to know a little bit about. I, I understand that you're you're a dog person, and this is just going off your Facebook profile picture. So I'm just I'm just sort of going off that. Um, tell me a little bit about these two, if there are only two. I just I think I noticed two, if I'm not mistaken. But tell me a little bit about them. Well, I wouldn't blame you if you noticed more. They're so furry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bundle. Uh, so I've always had dogs, um, certainly in the last 20 years. And in 2016, my last dog passed away and I, you know, was transitioning jobs, homes, life, you know, things like that. And I didn't have dogs. And one day during the, this lockdown, I got up in the morning and I was like, I've why am I not doing this? I've wanted to have dogs for such a long time. And I also decided that I want different kinds of dogs. I've always had bigger dogs that were outside and I wanted dogs that were going to be with me and, you know, all over me kind of thing and to to, to have that experience. So uh, I had a couple of choices and uh, I love these Shih Tzu puppies. I, the things I've read about them, you know, their personalities and, you know, just their whole nature and demeanor. And that's how I decided to get two. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes when you've got your intentions, the universe conspires to help you. So I found a breeder. He had two puppies available. He had puppies available. I chose them and a month later they came home and things have never been the same. The house is not the same. Life is not the same. The experiences are not the same. And it's just been a super awesome journey. I mean, you know, the lessons in patience and unconditional love and, you know, suffering this cuteness overload all the time. It have just been Super, super awesome. Uh, 
and it's been a great learning journey even though i've had dogs before because they i guess i the the lockdown has also and remote working has also enabled me to spend much more time with them yes these i'm learning about some strange things so the other day i was googling the structure of a dog's ear canal you know so then when i bark in they don't get full of water you know so it's been it's been quite an interesting experience and lot of new learning but uh, a test of patience definitely yeah uh, and yeah i mean i can't imagine you know they haven't even been with me for a year but i can't imagine how things were before yeah exactly exactly it's tra- it's almost like transformation all right <laughs> transformational and um yeah so I, i think i think i'm looking forward to seeing more more dog pictures on on facebook i'm, I'm looking forward to that brightening up my days um energy so this is a big question right um you know we we sometimes talk about this as, as the big energy question and it is um but i, I want to get your uh, opinion view perspective and um, if we contextualize and we take stock um where are we in south africa in terms of how we manage our energy resources currently and in your view where could we potentially be so to juxtapose where we are currently and then where could we potentially be in the next 10 years if we make you know, if we manage our energy resources well okay. so i want to maybe put this answer into three 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 lots three um uh, baskets so to speak so the first one is i think uh, in every sector of energy you know whether we're talking about the petrochemical sector the gas sector the power sector uh South Africa maybe a little bit more in some sectors than others but globally you know we're dealing with legacy systems we're dealing with decisions we've made in the past that have had consequences which you know we've long ignored the issues around environmental sustainability climate change etc which we've long ignored uh we've had uh, skills transitions in these systems we've had uh, technology transitions in these systems that uh, perhaps need some kind of a a uh, rethink in terms of how these legacy systems are are, are operating and how they working uh mm-hmm. they served us well uh you know they have a lot of potential i still think that some of the maximization of the asset potential in them is something to be thought about and and explored uh but some of it definitely has passed its use case in terms of the consequences it has you know opportunities for reinvestment and whether they will be efficient and and effective The second basket is a transitionary basket and I think that's actually where we are. So we're yeah. dealing with issues that are coming out of this legacy system that have to meet a new world. And that's one part of the transition. The other is the uptake of new technologies and new options. And I think uh, after somewhat slow start and lots of bumps particularly for example in the renewable IPP program, uh we're now moving into a, a space of great transition where they, we can have a lot of expectations. with the change legislation the the um, opening up of uh, self generation of grid generation uh, i think it would lead to other new things like wheeling of power and you know trading uh, arrangements and things like that so we in the transitionary phase and no industry uh, no energy industry has remained unimpacted by the climate change imperative so you know the the petrochemical industry the gas industry everybody is having to think about the impact that they have on the on the environment and it's not just confined to the carbon effect i mean i think it's issues about land about restoration water mm-hmm. clean water etc so there's lots of these impacts that we we've kind of reached an apex where as business the imperative to manage these things has become extremely important yeah i ended uh the virtual mining in java i listened to a couple conversations and i'm very very encouraged by uh the view that the mining companies are taking around you know uh embedding the sustainability footprint as part of things going going forward so i think uh, we're in a big transition phase and every day we hear about new technologies there's a there's a seeming reluctance around adoption of technology and i guess it's scary it has a lot of consequences one of the big consequences which i think in a country like south africa is very pertinent is the issue around the impact on job losses you know yes. and the ability to create job uh, new jobs and the ability to transition uh, education systems to be able to uptake these new jobs in these future type of 
type of job. So the transitionary phase is interesting, it's exciting, it's got lots of potential and opportunity, but it's also got a lot of careful thinking. And I think if one, if there's one lesson we must take out of the legacy system moving into the transitionary systems is, or the transitionary phase is how to manage consequences. So we could have thought about managing the imperatives for climate change the day we created these legacy systems because we knew those impacts would happen. Uh, but we didn't do anything about it. We rode the wave, we, you know, we reaped the profits and, and, you know, took the efficiencies out of the assets. And we now reach a point where we've got this challenge that it has become a little bit larger in life in many instances to, to, to sort out. And I, I think it, it should be a lesson going forward around consequence uh, management and, you know, how you, how you put systems in place to mitigate these in the longer term. Mm-hmm. And then I think the future basket. The future basket is an awesome place. Yeah. We, we hear about hydrogen, we talk about power to X, we, we look at uh, the digitization of systems and there's just so many things, um, you know, that come into this basket that are known, unknown, still being uh, uh, developed and it really creates for or makes for a very interesting, innovative space uh, in the energy energy sector. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, COVID, for example, has brought to the fore the need to be robust and agile and resilient in the energy systems you have and certainly enforce the need for energy systems and effective energy systems. So we've got big landscape. We've really got this big landscape. And, you know, in South Africa, we've got massive amounts of opportunity. We've got ESCOM with all its challenges. We can look at it as the end of the road or we can look at it as new opportunities. Yeah. Uh, you know, recently you've heard of lots of challenges in the petrochemical industry, with most of our refineries being shut down potentially up to about 2022, uh, mm-hmm. increased reliance on um, the importation of fuel. So another space for, you know, what are the opportunities there? We've got yeah. a big transitioning mining, mining industry, you know, with the rise of all these platinum group metals uh, and their potential application in, for, for energy use in the future, created a new landscape in the sector. It's, you know, battery storage, etc., has brought... Uh, into play the mining uh, and resource exploitation of new minerals, cobalt, uh, rhodium, and those kind of things. So the the space is like really transitioning. You know, we're all looking forward to what will happen with the two total gas fines, Brilpada, Leipert. We've got the Papo Delgado gas fines in Mozambique. Uh, You know, and I think uh, really... uh, the energy space is active and alive and really ripe for new thinking, innovation, problem solving, um, and doing things differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you on that. I think, you know, it, I love your perspective of how you're looking at it as it's, um, it, it's, it's a problem that needs solving, but it's nothing to be, to be, you know, downtrodden about. Um, it's actually an opportunity for us, you know, to to really sort of think think quite quite I think in an innovative style, and you know that 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 is something which I wanted to ask you about. You know, is there, we we obviously do require you know a rapid generation of of clever and smart solutions, um, but you know, how do we actually cultivate an environment that brings the best innovations? You know, from our young people working in the workplace, young engineers, young non-engineers, and you know, to sort of come back to a point that you spoke about earlier, how do we make it more inclusive? How do we cultivate that environment that will, you know, be the sort of hub or the oasis, as it were, of you know such clever solutions for the future and the present basket as well? So I, I like that question because I think uh, as we move forward, uh, you know, and especially with the, how things are changing, uh, the world of young people have opened up far, far more significantly. You know, I think of myself and uh, now I consider myself tech savvy, but, you know, when I grew up, if you needed to know an answer, you had to go to the library, get the encyclopedia or, or, mm-hmm. or periodicals and things like that, spend hours finding what you needed to know. Now you go to Google, you type the question and you get an answer and you get you get access to credible and non-credible sources. And I think, you know, you can make the, the, the choices there. But the, the access to information, the ability to answer questions, the ability to think things differently have certainly transitioned. And 
young people generally live in that world. And I think that uh, just the fact that they live in that world uh, gives them the ability to see things in a different way than people who don't live in that world. Yeah. You also have to accept that, you know, the longer you stay in a corporate environment, you get a little bit jaded. You know, you've got to live in a company with its processes and, you know, systems and things like that. So uh, you get a bit jaded. But I think the two actually make a very, very good synergy. So you've got people coming in with new, robust, somewhat ridiculous ideas at times. And you've got people who can temper it and bring it into play uh, and make it actually happen through experience, you know, the things that they've learned from in the past, um, the ways in which to do it, etc. So I think that we, we need to see business in that way. Uh, but I'm also just, you know, I'm not saying only young people have good ideas. I think everybody has good ideas. So, you know, but I'm just using, you know, relevant to your question yes. about people. I think there's this big synergy. So you've got the, the experience base and you've got the track record that can take these new ideas uh, to, to fruition. And, you know, then there's this transfer of learning and we always have this kind of culture uh, propagated. But I also feel that uh, young people need to bring some things from their side, you know, interest, questions, mm. um, you know, demonstrating an understanding of things. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's also like a little bit of courage, not worrying so much about making career limiting moves, but yes. uh, putting it out there uh, because you never know when an idea can add a, a, a lot of value. I also think that uh, in terms of innovation, you know, we it's very important to take inspiration. And we've every, at every phase in, in, in the world, we've had leaders and, you know, uh, uh, entrepreneurs and things like that that we, we, we could always look to. But uh, that's not always the way in which things happen. Everybody is not going to be Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, you know, kind of thing. Um, there's there's lots of value in innovating in the ordinary, yes. in innovating in things from 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 a day to day perspective. And if you look at the businesses that you are in, not all of them are big global conglomerates. So you're not looking for those pie in the sky solutions, the blue sky thinking. Sometimes just what is in front of you can be done better. Uh, and you'll be surprised then at a different uh, outcome. So I think, you know, for young people, for me, it's about being interested, being in the game, asking questions, putting yourself in a space where you can understand things, you, you, you're consistently on a learning path, asking mm-hmm. the questions and just being cognizant of the environment you're in and, and how you see it and could it be seen differently. Uh, yeah. For me, is, is where innovation is born. Mm, mm. No, that's really, really powerful. That's extremely, really powerful. So we have a, a featured question um, from one of our listeners. Um, you know, I and you know, we asked, we asked, you know, for for questions for you um, from our listener community. And you know, I always tell, I always tell the guests that you know, the listeners ask some really difficult, uh, you know, questions. And this is no different. Um, but here we go. Um, so the listener asks and they say, you know, how they say, hi, Kieran, how long is it going to be until we fully incorporate um, IPPs, independent power producers, um, into the national grid, specifically solar? And, then, you know, the sort of if that was question one, this is question one A. <laughs> why are we not assisting residential IPPs? OK, so let me start with question one. Mm. Um. I'm not going to venture a finite time in terms of number of years, but I think what we can um, look look at is how things have changed. So, uh, you know, 10 years ago, uh, we had a few uh, self-generating entities uh, on the grid like Sassel and Saki and that. Uh, And if we look at where we are now, we have a massive uptake of IPPs. You know, we've got four rounds of renewable energy projects. Uh, I think most of the round four projects are almost commissioned uh, mm. with the exception of one or two, like the Redstone SP, which hasn't started as yet. But uh, there's been a lot of positive outcome. We've seen it contribute to job creation. We've seen it contribute to social upliftment in the uh, communities that they, that they are in, economic development in those communities. And we've also seen it touch some parts of the country that, you know, previously hadn't enjoyed significant economic development. And it has re- really opened the eyes to many of the decision makers in the country about the impact that this program could have. And I think recently you've seen the big changes that came with the, you know, the, the small embedded generation rules, the self-generation rules, 
We've even seen in the last week calls from the chief executive of Eskom himself to mm-hmm. increase the, you know, the limit on on uh, the 10 megawatt limit of uh, in terms of self-generation. Uh, open it up, you know, pressure to bear on the Minister of Mineral Resource and Energy uh, to to facilitate and open this thing up and you know get the legislation going. So there is definitely a, a, a mindset change. Uh, on the necessity, the impact, the positive consequences uh, of having this IPP program, uh, you know, in South, in South Africa. So I think we're going to see a greater impetus. I think the IPP office itself is talking about uh, um, a big issue, you know, uh, more rounds to come, uh, another about 12,000 megawatt of, of capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not just renewables, different technologies as well. But I think that is also something we need to keep in mind is that we, we never ever, you know, unless storage becomes extremely economical and efficient, we're probably never ever going to reach a point where we only renewable energy. We're a resource-intensive economy. Mines require, uh, you know, um, a baseload power. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're mining, but, you know, if you put people underground or you have critical systems running, uh, you require baseload power. So you need to bring those synergies. But... Uh, it also doesn't mean that IPPs are only going to be renewable. So IPPs can be gas, you know, gas, uh, gas power producers and things like that. So I think you're going to see a big increase in the uptake. But there's one big thing that needs to change in my mind, and that is to create an enabling environment. So, yeah. so we've got an enabling construction environment. We've seen more and more local companies get into the IPP construction space. We've certainly seen, you know, for example, the professional services, the legal firms, the financial firms, consulting engineering firms, uh, more and more local participants come into the space. But uh, the one thing that we really do need to address, and it's, it's very necessary to have policy regulation and legislation, but it also needs to be a very facilitated and very effective process. And that really is one of the areas where we need to start looking at how we create a much more efficient and enabling system. Reducing the time it takes, you know, seriously questioning the information requirements and whether they are necessary for for decision making, relooking standards, uh, and then I think you know opening up the space in terms of the ESCOM grid, uh, the yeah. transmission grid, the connection points from from a substation point of view, uh, the the locational issues around grid strengthening. I think that's also uh, one of the key enablers that uh, need to be to be addressed. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that, you know there's this very negative view on on the challenges that ESCOM is having, but we always have to keep in mind the grid wasn't built for. Um, Variable renewable integration, uh, it mm. needs to adapt. We can question the pace at which it's adapting. We can question the decision making around it. But those are where the enabling points will come in to make the transition. Yeah. The second part of your question, residential IPPs. Um, you know, I think there are increasing private sector initiatives to support the, the unfolding of residential IPPs. So a lot of the banks have now created financing schemes. Mm-hmm. They are are willing to invest in a solar PV in your home on a financed uh, basis. So the private sector is certainly responding. From a, a public sector point of view, I guess it's a big balance between the utility. We have a legacy utility. It serves this country very, very well. But it's at yeah. a point, it has a huge debt that it needs to service. And I think there needs to be this integrated view. You know, if you if you kind of take everybody off the grid, what happens to ESCOM? That's a big question. It's a question that lingers on everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, the public sector support of residential um, IPPs is a bit slow. We have seen municipalities transition. We've seen the Cape Town municipality, for example, the Cape Town City Council uh, undertake very bold and robust moves in terms of, yeah. uh, you know, embedding their ability to, to self-generate. So we've seen these very bold moves coming, uh, you know, which would impact residents and that uh, there's definitely the uh, private sector that's responding to it. Uh, The public sector, I think, is still going to be a little bit behind in terms of fully putting the, you know, the money behind it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really insightful answer. And I think, you know, something which, you know, does warrant a lot of critical thought. And actually, you know, as you rightly say, you know, the, the, the issue has been brought to the forefront, you know, based on its potential to sort of alleviate, you know, the the sort of situation that we find ourselves in at the moment. Um, 
if we if we discuss another question that I think is you know at the forefront right now, and you've already mentioned it, you know already as as you were speaking, um, which is the carbon question, um, and it's currently obviously at the forefront, you know, of the energy question. It's part of that question in terms of you know how do we sort of go about in our future energy mix. I want to ask you, you know, how do you think we balance the the urgent need um, that there is for the reduction of emissions? Um, with our energy mix plan for the future. So talking about the future basket, given what we have in South Africa currently. And, you know, what do you think are the options that we have in this regard? And how do we balance this whilst also, you know, preserving the social compact that we have, you know, in our industries, in our different industries to bring about, um, you know, positive community change? So the sort of complex, you know, multidisciplinary, multi-component question. How do we sort of, you know, handle this? And what do you think our options are going forward? So, you know, in in some, in just maybe a one-liner answer, I think with great difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, addressing this carbon question, if it was easy, it would have been done already. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it had, uh, you know, if it was just simply solve the carbon thing without any consequences, it would have been done already. You know, for a country like South Africa, if you just think about uh, not having coal-fired power generation, uh, it impacts ESCOM, it impacts the, the power stations themselves, it impacts the coal mining industry, it impacts towns that survive on a power station and a coal mine. Uh, it impacts the businesses in those towns. So it has far-reaching consequences. It's not such a simple answer. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, it's imperative. It is now very widely known, and I don't think anybody has any doubts in their mind about why we need to do it. However, it doesn't make solving the problem less complex. Yeah. It does, though, and, you know, I guess everything in life can be seen as a problem or an opportunity, you know, and it does create a lot of opportunities. So... You would have seen Eskom recently and the World Bank issued expressions of interest for companies that were interested in working with them on repowering four of the coal-fired power stations. Now, that is excellent. You know, create new energy options, still be able to, to, to supply electricity uh, while doing it with a lower carbon footprint. That's important. It also perhaps would create opportunities for... What do you do if you if you repurpose in a specific way? What do you do with other systems that support a power station? So what do you do with the uh, the bulk materials handling systems in, in on a on a coal-fired power station? Can it be used for something else? You know, is there another application for it? Uh, coal-fired power stations have huge water treatment plants. You know, isn't that an opportunity to mm-hmm. supplement uh, local government and municipal municipal level uh, water provision? So I think it. Uh, it starts to open up a world of possibilities in terms of the things that we, we need to do. Um, the enablement, again, is the challenges that we have. And I think, you know, one of the critical uh, levers uh, in this transition is the uh, minimization of the impact on job losses and creating new job opportunities. And I've said that, you know, many times in what I've spoken about today, but I think it's very critical for South Africa that uh, we don't actually transition the energy sector, that uh, it becomes a graveyard for jobs. You know, we dump all the old uh, jobs, you know, uh, we don't need the old skills anymore, and we don't have a solid plan to transition the existing skills base and and create a new skills base. I mean, mean, for South Africa, a country with more than a quarter of the employable workforce unemployed, it's not even a choice. So it's a very critical imperative that we look at it. And I think that's, one of the biggest social contributions that uh, this energy transition needs to, to, to make. You know, upliftment of communities that you have an impact in economic development in these communities, they kind of flow from good sound decision making about how you transition the infrastructure. But of course, it has to be a focus area. You know, it can't be something on the back burner that, you know, you just let happen. You've got to make a concerted effort on it. So I think uh, the, the, the change from a carbon perspective, you know, the imperative to manage this climate change issue uh, really does bring about opportunities. Yeah. Like everything, it's difficult transitions. And if you look at us as a country, we have battled to solve some really simple problems, to be quite frank. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the constantly governance issues and, 
you know, parochial interest kind of issues creeping up into to what we do. So it's not going to be uh, a, 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 without those kind of challenges that we that we need to navigate. But uh, I think there's massive amount of opportunity. You know, when it comes to lowering our carbon footprint, I think there's a lot of potential opportunities that we, we need to look at. We don't have extensive waste to energy facilities elsewhere in the world. It's been used as a massive opportunity. It doesn't only power, you know, it, uh, it, it has uh, good environmental consequences, creates jobs, and it, it, it kind of um, manages the waste problem. You know, yeah. generate lots of waste as human beings. Um, you know, the opportunities for biogas through like anaerobic digestion, uh, you know, those types of uh, new technology. So we do have some of uh, these kind of plants running, but they probably not at the scale that they actually could be. So there's a lot of wasted opportunity. Uh, well, I wouldn't say wasted, but opportunity that could be harnessed differently yeah. and given a different um, uh, impetus. You know, I think there's also uh, new technologies, the, the world of hydrogen, how it's opening up, uh, mm. you know, cell technologies uh, that are coming in, um, you know, the use of methanol, ethanol, those kind of things. So I think uh, there's lots of untapped potential. Absolutely. Uh, that and the untapped potential is now all being looked at in the context of a lower carbon environment. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a question I've often wondered about, and I have to say I don't know the answer, and maybe I haven't spoken to enough people about it. But uh, as a coal-intensive country, we have never really made great investments in carbon capture, storage, and sequestration technology. Mm. Uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, the oil company, has a, a, a commercial-scale CCUS plant that it's mm. built, carbon capture and usage where they take the CO2 from steel production and they use the CO2 to increase their uh, uh, injection for oil recovery. So mm. you know, closed, closed loop uh, chain where you've mitigated the CO2 consequences quite significantly. So you're a country that's rich in oil. This is the kind of thing you need to do to mitigate, yeah. you know, the impact of hydrocarbon production. Mm. Uh, and you invest in this technology. And I've often wondered why a South Africa we really haven't looked at this extensively. Mm. Uh, I, years ago, we were exploring sinks and things like that. I've seen some of the reports in that, never really kept track of it. But it is a mm. question, isn't it an option for us? Because yep. we have the coal reserves. You know, the mining industry always talked about enough coal for two or 300 years. Mm. Um, I guess if you use it more efficiently and effectively, it probably lasts even longer. So yes. those are the burning questions, you know, I think that create new potential opportunities for how we could uh, move the sector forward in uh, an environment where we mitigate and manage the CO2 footprint and, you know, we put sustainable uh, measures in place. Um, I think we also need to take cognizance of the world that we live in. So yeah. in, a, in an investment company and financiers who have made billions of, of rands or dollars or whatever out of coal mining projects and power, coal-fired power station projects, put their hand up and say, no more coal. I think you've got to take cognizance of where that is heading uh, yeah. and what for the environment that you, that you are in. Uh, mm. You know, and you, you've seen financiers starting to drive, you know, the environment, sustainability and governance uh, uh, profiles around the investments that they look at much more stringently. So that has to become embedded in a way you do business. So whatever you're doing to mitigate the carbon impact, whatever new things you're doing in the environment, that's definitely going to have to be a big tick box. It has to almost become, you know, instead of just an investment committee approval with the return on investment and, and you know, uh, that kind of thing that you look at, you're going to have to look at now how do we satisfy these kind of uh, uh, goals. Yeah. I missed anything in your very multidisciplinary question. <laughs> No, I think you've you've given us you know double what we asked for. I think I think that that was incredibly an incredibly you know powerful answer. And I think you know something which definitely I think sparks a few thoughts in my mind. You know about you know, um, firstly I think I think you know you have to actually start off with the perspective that these aren't these are not just problems. There are actually opportunities for us to to actually you know create some innovative solutions. And, you know, for us to actually think differently about how we actually go about this. And, you know, there are some really burning questions that I think we need to answer. 
um, both, you know, not not in 20 years' time, not in 10 years' time, not in five years' time, but now, um, you know, in terms of how are we actually going to manage some of these some of these things that are here and that, that we need to, you know, quite frankly, need to take stock of. So I think it's been, I think it was a, a really, really insightful answer. Um, and Kieran, you know, we, we've come to a close. I just want to thank you, you know, for, I think, sharing you know, some incredible knowledge um, with us. Um, I, I feel, yeah, rich, much, much richer um, in terms of this topic, in terms of what I've known, um, you know, just by speaking to you now. And I think, you know, every single listener who's listened to this um, really is probably quite inspired, you know, to actually think about this differently. And I think it's it's your your journey and your story is incredibly inspirational. And you know, please don't underestimate that. Um, in the future, I think you know this 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 by itself is living testament for that. So I just want to thank you for coming onto the show. I trust it's been enjoyable for you as well to sort of go through this and to sort of you know chat through this. But yeah, from us, I just want to thank you so much for coming onto the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I think it's been a privilege for me to to share what I know. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it uh, makes one person think about it, uh, think about something differently or, you know, creates any level of inspiration, then it's a uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You. And, I, and I have no doubt that it's uh, it's more than one person. <laughs> so she's no doubt on that. Um, so uh, to you, our listeners from Kieran and myself, thank you so much uh, once again for listening in. Uh, if you're listening via the podcast, or watching this if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, please do subscribe to whatever platform that you're engaging with this and let us know your thoughts. Uh, please head over to impactfulconversations.co.za um, and your questions as well. And, you know, submit any questions or thoughts or feedback that you have um, from listening to this episode as well as part of this series. But from Kieran and myself, we just want to say thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the episode hope that you're impacted positively and that you found substance and significance. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please subscribe to this podcast and give it a five-star rating. You can also check out and subscribe to our episodes in video format on the Impactful Conversations YouTube channel. Do head over to our website, impactfulconversations.ca.za, for more details about the show, as well as to give us any feedback of how you found the show and to send through your questions to our future guests. Thank you to all of you who have listened, subscribed, and given us feedback. It really does mean an incredible deal. But anyway, until the next episode, bye-bye, stay safe, stay healthy, and wash your hands.